0: Hey, everyone. Before we start the show, I want to tell you that right now, Senate Democrats have the power to stop the wave of voter suppression laws sweeping the country by passing the For the People Act. But first, they have to come together and eliminate the filibuster. To do your part to end the filibuster, head over to votesaveamerica.com slash for the people and use our new whip count to find out where your senator stands. If they're on the fence, give them a call using our call tool. Together, we can unbreak the Senate and save democracy. Check out votesaveamerica.com slash for the people today.
1: Breaking news, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died. Ginsburg, who was 87... On this vote, the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed.
0: This is certainly a huge victory for President Trump. He has impacted the courts for generations. The Trump era played out as a series of body blows to democracy, and the threat Donald Trump's most loyal allies poised to representative government and the rule of law is ongoing.
2: Nine new election bills were introduced in the state Senate today, all of them coming from Republicans. Those leaders wanting to restrict absentee ballots and curb voter registration, among other things.
0: A raft of new restrictions for voting and elections in the state, including making it a crime to offer food or water to voters waiting in lines. Staving off the immediate crisis will require President Biden and Democrats in Congress to institute the kinds of democracy reforms that have been a focal point of this show. Filibuster reform, voting and civil rights, statehood, nonpartisan gerrymandering.
1: What I'm worried about is how un-American this whole initiative is. It's sick, it's sick, and it cannot be sustained.
0: But the longer-term damage the Trump presidency did to democracy will be harder to undo. In partnership with Mitch McConnell, President Trump helped Republicans complete a decades-long project to seize control of the federal courts.
2: President Trump has managed to confirm 196 judges on the federal bench. Is that normal for a president? No, that is not normal at all. In fact, the Senate has confirmed 51 of presidents' nominees to the appellate courts. That's more than any other president at this term in their presidency.
0: With Bush v. Gore, Republican-appointed justices assured that their own court wouldn't give way to a new liberal majority. The ruling allowed George W. Bush to make a huge imprint on the judiciary after losing the popular vote. President Obama undid some of that damage over eight years. But in his first years, he deprioritized judicial nominations altogether. And when Republicans took control of the Senate in 2014 they slowed the pace of confirmations dramatically. They famously stole a Supreme Court seat by holding a vacancy open for Obama's entire last year in office and refusing to give his nominee even a hearing. That allowed Trump to essentially appoint five years' worth of judges in four, including, in the final days of his presidency, Justice Amy Coney Barrett. That's where the Biden era begins with Trump-loyal elected officials trying to rig elections in the near term, and Trump-loyal judges engaging in a rearguard defense against the will of the people in the long term. And here's the biggest problem of all. These two crises intersect. Biden joined the fight over the courts with more urgency than Obama did. He quickly nominated a diverse and progressive roster of judges to the federal bench, including D.C. Circuit nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson, who many court watchers expect will become the first black female Supreme Court justice after Stephen Breyer retires. Biden also empaneled a commission to propose reforms to the judiciary.
2: One thing currently being discussed is potentially reforming the Supreme Court. The commission is also examining possible term limits instead of lifetime appointments. As a reminder, conservatives...
0: And to top it all off, Biden nominated a Justice Department leadership team that will change and improve our national posture towards addressing voting and civil rights violations, which he talked about this week after the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial was announced.
1: We can and we must do more to reduce the likelihood that tragedies like this will ever happen and occur again to ensure the black and brown people or anyone that they don't have to wake up knowing that they can lose their very life in the course of just living their life. You know, state and local government and law enforcement needs to step up, but so does the federal government. That's why I've appointed the leadership of the Justice Department that I have. I've also nominated two key Justice Department nominees, Vanita Gupta and Kristen Clark, who are eminently qualified, highly respected lawyers who have spent their entire careers fighting to advance racial equity and justice.
0: These are promising signs, but they likely can't stand up to the perfect storm bearing down on us. Biden's Justice Department can fight voter suppression laws in court, but what will it matter if the judges ignore their arguments? Democrats in Congress can pass democracy reforms, but what happens when the same judges strike them down, along with other huge parts of Biden's agenda? My guest this week is Leah Littman. She's a constitutional law professor at University of Michigan and co-host of Strict Scrutiny, a podcast about the Supreme Court and the culture of elite law. We spoke Tuesday afternoon before the jury rendered its verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial about how we got to this point, how Biden has responded, and what more it will take to overcome the longer crises of democracy the country faces. I'm Brian Boyler. Welcome to Rubicon. Thanks for joining us, Leah.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So for several decades, at least, I think it was safe to say that Republicans and conservatives cared much more about the courts than Democrats and liberals. Uh, Is that a fair assessment? And do you think that's still true?
2: I think that that is absolutely historically accurate. You know, Most memorably, in the 2016 presidential election, it appeared like voters who were going to the ballot to select a president to pick a Supreme Court justice picked Donald Trump to do that selection. Um, I don't think that is currently the case, although it remains to be seen whether this kind of energy and interest on the part of Democrats is going to be sustained.
0: So here's a story I tell myself about why the gap between Republican and Democratic enthusiasm about the court as an issue is closing. Um, and I want to run it by someone who actually knows what she's talking about. So it goes like this. The rights fixation on the court began as a, a kind of semi-defensible, small-D Democratic reaction to the Warren and Berger courts, where the Supreme Court was affirming new rights for women and minorities and conservatives sort of thought, you know, We're the political majority of the country, and who are they to force this stuff down our throats? And so they set about trying to capture the courts. They, by and large, succeeded in that project. But at the same time, they became a political minority. Um, So the fixation changed from sort of opposing the court's judicial activism to soliciting conservative judicial activism. On the flip side of this, Democrats assembled a political majority and they sort of relative to republicans anyway decentered the court uh one because they feared backlash to the kind of jurisprudence that had prevailed um before and and also because they're they're the political majority so we should make change by legislating not by having uh the courts kind of impose what we want on the country and i think it's changing now because republicans through accidents of history And acts of corruption, uh, frankly, have like stacked the courts, and the courts started thwarting popular majorities in really questionable ways. And that brings us to the current day. That's that's my story. So, what grade would you give my understanding of the last fifty years?
2: Uh, B plus for using big words and important (laughs) concepts. Uh, No, Um, no, I think that that does make sense. You know, you mentioned kind of generally speaking that. Part of the conservative interest and conservative takeover in the courts was a reaction to the Warren Court, which, of course, is the court that announced Brown versus Board of Education and that court's recognition of new rights for women and minorities. Um, But if you actually drill down into the details, it looks like some of that opposition and some of that movement got started. In particular as a reaction to Brown versus Board of Education. So Sherilyn Eiffel, who's the president and legal director of the NAACP legal defense fund, you know, has talked about how judicial nominations became more polarized, not as a response to Roe versus Wade, which I think is a common story, but actually as a response to Brown versus Board of Education, with nominees from both political parties, you know, purporting to put up nominees who would either remedy school segregation and require school districts to undertake affirmative steps to integrate or not. Um, similarly, Calvin Terbeek who's a political scientist, um, has a fascinating new paper that actually describes how the movement around originalism gained a lot of force and took shape in response to Brown versus Board of Education in particular.
0: Originalism is a term many conservative legal elites use to describe how they think judges should approach judging. But its meaning has changed over time. It once meant that judges should assure that laws comply with the original intent of the Constitution. Now most of them say government should be bound by the supposed original meaning of the Constitution. And here's the key. Both forms of the interpretive methodology have been used as pretext for asserting that laws and rulings conservatives don't like are unconstitutional. And when that hasn't worked, Conservative judges themselves have happily ignored their supposed originalist convictions in favor of ruling how they see fit to advance conservative goals. As Leah suggests, it's enough to make you wonder whether conservative judges use legal jargon to cover their true aim, imposing conservative policy preferences from the bench as if the Constitution required it.
2: While it's true that perhaps that movement and this story can be traced to small-D democratic ideas about wanting to take issues out of the courts and into the political branches, the specific issue that they really wanted to take out of the courts was remedying racial segregation.
0: And that's why you've had decades and decades and decades of conservatives sort of saying that their main concern about anything the court does is that they use a particular methodology, not we don't like this particular opinion because that would place the movement on the side of segregation and thus imperil its political viability.
2: Yeah, you know, it's both a virtue and a vice of legal reasoning and interpretive methodology is that they allow us to talk about issues that are super important and impact real people's lives in a way that makes them seem less polarizing. So we can talk about, for example, segregation or police violence in terms of federalism, separation of powers, originalism, textualism, and As abstract principles, those aren't principles that necessarily one political party should agree with and another political party should disagree with. But the problem is they kind of become tropes that are associated and almost stalking horses for particular substantive values. And then that excuses, you know, the party for appointing judges who are reaching these results when they do so through language, you know, that doesn't sound like, well, they're reaching the results because they agree with the substantive result or not.
0: Right, this is not an ideological determination I made except that my only ideology is originalism and it forced my hand and I had to do this thing. Um, okay, so I'll actually uh, take the B plus, turn it into a B minus, except <laughs> you're corrective. Um, but I think we agree that the end point of the story is that Democrats and liberals realized that there was no dodging a fight over the cons- the composition of the court. And one manifestation of the left's renewed interest in judges came in 2019, just as the, primary, the Democratic primary was heating up, uh, when the team at Demand Justice tried to get Democrats to pledge not to nominate more corporate lawyers uh, to the bench if they won the presidency. So just as a starting point, is that a good or feasible goal to work towards?
2: I don't know if I embrace it as an absolute principle. You know, if we said no corporate lawyers on the bench, that would exclude some people who have been really great judges or justices. But what I hope we do get toward is the following. First is the composition of the federal courts as it currently is, is way skewed toward corporate lawyers. You know, it would be great if the next batch of nominees included the percentage of corporate lawyers as the percentage of judges who used to be public defenders. So, for example, like the current composition of the federal courts is something like 2 to 3% public defenders. You know, if the Biden administration wants to put forward a slate of nominees that is 2 to 3% corporate lawyers, you know, no objections from me. Um, second is, I think another important part of this push is the idea that lawyers should be responsible for the positions that they argue for in practice. And part of the concern with nominating corporate lawyers is that you are going to be nominating people who have, for example, defended corporations in minimum wage violations or unlawful or abusive employment practices or who have forced their employees to arbitrate disputes rather than litigating discrimination or harassment claims in the federal courts. And so if the Democratic Party actually wants to be on the side of workers, laborers, and other kinds of civil rights, then they shouldn't be nominating people who have taken very anti-worker, anti-labor, anti-civil rights positions as practicing lawyers. And so perhaps, you know, part of this push is just asking people to think about the kinds of decisions and practices and positions they take as practicing lawyers.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up before I did, because every now and then, like a Democratic Party-aligned lawyer... Will represent a terrible client. um, And people will observe this. And defenders of the old norm kind of fall back on this old saw about how we don't want to stigmatize lawyers for representing unsavory clients, sort of as if corporations were no different than like an indigent defendant accused of selling drugs. And I've always thought as a non lawyer that this struck me as like way too cute uh, and convenient for the profession, right? Like, first of all, because the 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 right to counsel isn't the same thing as an entitlement to make tons of money representing rich bad guys and then you catch no flack for it second because just as a reporter i've noticed that uh, public interest lawyers and civil rights lawyers they don't always get this same kind of deference in the political sphere uh, right like we saw, we see that happening now with biden's uh DOJ nominees. Um we may see it with some of his judicial nominees. We definitely saw it when Barack Obama nominated uh Debo Adegbala to, to lead the civil rights division. You know, suddenly who you represent or who or, or who you file an amicus on behalf of matters, just not if you're a corporate lawyer. And then you know the, the third part of it is like, do we really want to hold ourselves to a view that also requires us to say that there's nothing wrong with the choices someone like Don McGahn or Pat Sipalone made as Donald Trump's White House counsel.
2: I have a lot of sympathy for your dissident view. Lawyers should actually be responsible for the positions they choose to take, even as government lawyers. So, for example, the Trump administration lawyers who were arguing for covering up, you know, the call between the president and the Ukrainian president, um, you know, in which he was trying to extract political favors and extort him, you know, those lawyers should actually be responsible for those decisions. Um, And I don't think that that is, would be, working some great harm to the legal profession to actually say, no, there is a distinction between representing someone who is facing, you know, a capital crime or life in prison and doesn't have the money to pay for a lawyer versus being a hired gun for a corporation who is, you know, trying to prevent their workers from engaging in union building.
0: So how do you crack that egg in practice, right? Like if if, if a blanket blacklisting of corporate lawyers won't work because, you know, you don't want to basically paint with too broad a brush, uh, how do you— in inject scrutiny uh, of corporate representation in the appointment process um, so that it's not like it used to be where both parties regard being a partner in a big corporate law firm as sort of like a neutral credential.
2: I think you do so just by asking people, you know, well, what are the big cases you have litigated? Who are the clients you've represented? And then asking whether those cases and clients have undermined major interests, of the Democratic Party and Democratic Coalition. You know, again, if you are a big corporate lawyer who has spent your entire career defending corporations engaged in union busting, I mean, why are you calling yourself a Democrat? If you have spent your lifetime defending corporations' ability to deny employees healthcare benefits or pensions, I mean, I don't understand the point of saying you're a Democrat. Um, It can't be that... Democrats can't consider the litigating positions of people they are putting up for lifetime appointments when it's so clear that Republicans have been doing so for years. You know, This is one big difference to me in the kinds of nominees we see from different administrations. For the last four years, we saw the Trump administration and really the you know, previous Republican administrations selecting people who had been on the forefront of advocating for causes associated with the Republican Party, restricting voting rights, um, chipping away at LGBTQ equality, undermining the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. Those are the people that the Trump administration was selecting for federal judgeships. And why can't we as Democrats nominate the people who are on the forefront litigating and pioneering civil rights claims and other democratic causes for federal judgeships rather than just nominating someone who's given some money to the Democratic Party but spent their life engaged in you know, pro-corporate work. That just strikes me as very asymmetrical and not good for the composition of the federal courts.
0: Yeah. And I think what you're saying kind of gets to the absurdity of the of the last thing we were talking about, this idea that you should never judge a lawyer by their clients. Like when, when Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed, it was sort of popular to observe that three of the nine justices worked on Bush v. Gore on the Republican side. And you would get pushback from defenders of John Robert's Uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett that, um, you know, they were just doing their jobs as up and coming lawyers in conservative politics.
2: It's particularly absurd when you are talking about lawyers like John Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, who clerked on the Supreme Court, graduated at the top of their classes from various law schools, could have gone on to work for any elite law firm and essentially have any job they wanted. Like you choose what to spend your time on, and you choose what causes to fight for. Of course, we should evaluate someone's candidacy based on the kind of work that they've done, um, and it's completely relevant that three of the justices chose to spend their time, you know, trying to get a Republican precedent elected by stopping the counting of votes.
0: Okay, so back to Joe Biden. Um, I don't think he took the demand justice pledge, um, but we do have some (laughs) indication of how he views the nominee's question in the form of his first 11 federal judicial nominees. So what's your impression of these nominees? Um, How closely do they conform to the no corporate lawyers uh, demand? And to what extent do they represent a departure from the Obama paradigm?
2: I think it's helpful here to disaggregate two groups within the nominees. The first are the Court of Appeals nominees, and the second are the District Court nominees. The Court of Appeals nominees are nominees who will serve on the Court of Appeals, the appellate courts within the federal system. And those nominees are primarily selected by the administration and the White House Counsel's Office. The District Court nominees, the nominees who sit on the trial courts within the federal system— are primarily selected by home state democratic senators who recommend names to the White House Counsel's office, who then you know will make a selection. And sometimes they might just recommend you know one name rather than several. I think based on that categorization, it's clear that the Biden administration and the White House Counsel's office is really prioritizing professional diversity. two of the three first, Court of Appeals nominees were former public defenders, whereas the district court nominees, their background um, was much more traditional. Many of them had formerly been prosecutors, U.S. attorneys. Many of them had some background in corporate law. So there, while the district court nominees were demographically diverse, you know, we would have the first Muslim American judge, the professional diversity was not quite as great. So the first batch of nominees looks pretty different. It's unclear whether Democratic senators are going to kind of get the message and get on board with this new understanding about what might make a good nominee, but at least the Court of Appeals nominees look pretty exciting, at least from my perspective, um, when thinking about professional diversity.
0: Can you widen the lens a bit um, to include Biden's, some of his executive branch nominees, and hires that are sort of judicial adjacent? Um, like, how much does it matter to have an administration taking more aggressive positions on things like voting rights and antitrust enforcement, given how unwelcoming the judiciary he's sort of inheriting is?
2: Yeah, so I was super stoked to hear that he was selecting Vanita Gupta and Kristen Clark to lead, you know, sections of the Department of Justice. Um, They would be in charge of, you know, civil rights as well as voting rights um, within the Department of Justice. And I was excited about that for a few reasons. One is I think those are just critical issues facing the country. Second is those two individuals in particular had been on the forefront about being outspoken regarding the various threats facing our democracy for the last four years. And so all of a sudden, we were living in a world in which the Biden administration was willing to select people who had been willing to go to bat for small D Democratic principles and big D Democratic principles publicly. And in the past, that's not really who Democratic administrations selected for high ranking posts. You know, they were previously selecting people who maintain some studious form of neutrality and just not engaged in politics whatsoever. You know, again, the neutral prosecutor or the corporate lawyer who was viewed as neutral, but that's not Vanita Gupta and that's not Kristen Clark. And so seeing them in the batch of nominees for the Department of Justice was really Exciting. I don't think that model really represents the kinds of people that the administration has selected as judges thus far. That is, we're not seeing them nominate people who have been leading sections of the ACLU or people who have been on the forefront of voting rights litigation for the Southern Poverty Law Center or the NAACP LDF, not yet at least. Um, I hope we're going to get some of those nominees, but they're not selecting cause litigators, at least not yet. And I think they should, you know, in part because Republicans have been doing this for a long time. It would give more professional diversity to the federal courts, you know, so on and so forth. But the limitations of the judiciary adjacent nominees at the Department of Justice are the reality that it's great to have people at the Department of Justice who are committed to voting rights. um, But there's only so much you can do given the composition of the federal courts and the Supreme Court in particular.
0: Here's what Leah's getting at. Benita Gupta and Kristen Clark are excellent lawyers and a credit to the Biden administration. But the separation of powers means judges don't actually have to listen to them, even if their arguments are airtight. That's why Republicans have been so keen on capturing the courts. Judges can stop policymakers in their tracks. And when the Supreme Court rules, however it wants to rule, its decision is final. When you have that kind of power, winning elections with popular majorities becomes kind of superfluous.
2: So even if you have a super great Department of Justice who wants to litigate these cases and is out there collecting evidence and defending plaintiffs who are bringing these Voting Rights Act suits, There's just a limit to what they can do in the absence of additional legislation expanding voting rights or courts that will enforce the legislation that we actually have. Um, So I hope that the Biden administration will take a page out of who they are selecting for the DOJ positions and nominate some of those people to the federal courts as well.
0: Right. It's not like the, uh, you know, the Obama administration attorneys in 2009, 10, you know, Basically, through his whole term, were're deficient advocates on these issues. It's just that the Supreme Court, as it was constituted at the time, was intent on doing what it did, and there's only so much being a brilliant lawyer arguing against that view can do to dissuade them, right?
2: Yeah, like everyone was shouting at the Supreme Court, you know, the ground on which you are thinking about striking down the Voting Rights Act is insane. It has no basis in the text of the Constitution history, your prior cases, so on and so forth. Like, you can scream until you're blue in the face at them, and that's just not going to make any difference. And so that's part of why, you know, you actually need to do a lot of these judicial nominations as well if you want to give DOJ, you know, some power to actually enforce the laws that we have.
0: Coming up, how worried should we be that federal judges will undo the progress the Biden administration and the Democratic Congress have already made? When we return... Rubicon is brought to you by Policy Genius. April means a lot of not so fun things getting fooled, getting rained on, and getting your taxes done. So if you need a positive experience to balance it all out, consider protecting your loved ones by getting life insurance with Policy Genius. Policy Genius can help you compare top insurers in one place and save 50% or more on life insurance. Once you find your best option, the Policy Genius team will set up your new policy for you and answer any questions you have along the way. And you can feel good knowing your family has financial protection. Getting started is easy. First, head to PolicyGenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much coverage you need and compare quotes to find your best price. Since their licensed agents work for you, not the insurance companies, there's zero hassle. If you hit any speed bumps during the application process, PolicyGenius will take care of everything. That kind of service has earned Policy Genius a five star rating across thousands of reviews on Trustpilot and Google. And the best part? All the benefits of Policy Genius the comparison tool, the handling of paperwork, the unbiased advice are totally free. Policy Genius can promise that you won't leave their website feeling like a fool. You can save 50% or more by comparing life insurance quotes and feel good knowing that if something happens, your loved ones will be taken care of. Go to policygenius.com to get started. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Rubicon is brought to you by Super Coffee. Super Coffee is the healthy, delicious alternative to sugary coffee drinks like Starbucks Frappuccinos and other iced coffee and energy drinks. Super Coffee combines the caffeine from two cups of coffee with protein and healthy fats to give you hours of focused energy with no jitters or crash. It takes just one Super Coffee to get you through recording an endless Google Doc of voiceover script and ad reads. Trust me on this. Did you know a Starbucks Frappuccino has 52 grams of sugar and 370 calories? That's like starting your day off with a double cheeseburger. Super Coffee is just as delicious as a Frappuccino, but contains 0 grams of sugar, 10 grams of protein, and only 80 calories per bottle. It's also keto-friendly, lactose-free, and gluten-free. Super Coffee's best seller is their bottled coffees, but they also make tasty canned espressos, coffee creamers, and ground coffee. I've tried them all, and my favorite these days is their mocha bottle. But they recently sent me a box with this can of French vanilla coffee inside, and now I got to admit I'm kind of torn. Lately, I've been drinking Super Coffee on weekend mornings so I can get a full energy workout in before breakfast, and it does just the trick. Super Coffee was recently named the fastest growing food and beverage brand in America by Inc. Magazine. Super Coffee has a 60-day money-back guarantee, meaning if you don't love it, you get your money back, no questions asked. And we've worked out an exclusive deal for Rubicon podcast listeners. Receive 25% off your entire first purchase. I recommend trying one of their best-selling variety packs or bundles. It's a great way to try all of their delicious flavors. To claim this deal, go to drinksupercoffee.com Rubicon or use code Rubicon at checkout. Supercoffee is also available nationwide in over 25,000 stores like Target, Whole Foods, Walmart, Kroger, and CVS. Welcome back to Rubicon. My guest this week is legal scholar Leah Littman. We're talking about how the Biden administration can reform and rebalance the courts after years of Republican court packing. Let's imagine an optimistic scenario. Um, the Senate confirms all of these new nominees. Um, the White House continues filling vacancies as they arise with uh, with judges in the same mold. Uh, Justice Breyer retires in a timely fashion. Um, Biden replaces him with... Uh, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson or someone similarly distinguished, um, add it all up, the courts remain extremely skewed. So how how big a threat is this judiciary to Biden's agenda overall?
2: It is a huge threat to Biden's agenda on several fronts. Um, first, let's think about, you know, some of the policies or priorities the administration might have, such as climate change. Um A lot of climate change will be addressed through administrative agencies like the EPA, for example. This court has five justices on it who have said, we actually want to peel back administrative agencies' authority back to the time predating the New Deal, you know, before the 1930s, before administrative agencies were actually Regulating, you know, most facets of our lives. If this court actually did that and revived what's known as the non-delegation doctrine, which prohibits Congress from giving authority to agencies to actually make rules that impose requirements on private parties, I mean, there goes the EPA's ability to actually address most of climate change. So, you know, that's one big thing that is on the chopping block. Um, I think immigration is something else. Let's think about, for example, the Biden administration reversing the Trump administration's decision not to grant temporary protected status to immigrants from many different countries. Let's think about the Biden administration's decision to retain the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. There is nothing stopping, you know, some courts, some Trump judges on the lower courts, and then the Supreme Court from invalidating, you know, those grants of discretionary relief to groups of immigrants. Um, There are current challenges right now to the Center for Disease Controls, moratorium on evictions. You know, the CDC prevented or prohibited evictions because of the coronavirus. Um, Several Trump-appointed judges to the district courts invalidated that prohibition on the ground that it was unconstitutional or violated various statutes prescribing the CDC's authority. Um, So basically anything the Biden administration might try to do through the executive branch is at risk of being invalidated by the increasingly conservative federal courts and this Supreme Court. Um, Now let's imagine that The Biden administration does away with a filibuster and passes some legislation through the Democratic House and Democratic Senate. That legislation, too, is going to be vulnerable to the courts. So, for example, let's imagine that they pass the John Lewis Restoration of the Voting Rights Act. Nothing is stopping the Supreme Court from saying, this is Shelby County versus Holder Part 2. Like we said, you couldn't actually subject these states to preclearance, and we meant that. Um, you can't do it under this revised Voting Rights Act either. Um, there are also previous opinions that hint at maybe Congress can't actually prohibit partisan gerrymandering in the states by creating independent districting commissions and drawing districts within the states rather than allowing state politicians to do so and engage in partisan gerrymandering. So let's imagine, again, Congress passes this legislation prohibiting various forms of interfering with voting rights. Nothing is stopping this Supreme Court or any of the lower federal courts from invalidating that legislation.
0: We've gotten a lot of questions. We do a mailbag segment at the end of every episode and and the last couple have been about this basic thing. And I'm actually kind of heartened to hear. I basically told our listeners what you just said. I am very worried about democracy and voting rights reform and about his whole regulatory agenda. Um, and beyond the like, you know, whatever specific arguments uh, these judges or the justices use to to throw those things out or or take a hatchet to them um i'm worried that you know one of the perks of having lifetime appointment is that you can kind of wait out the political alignment of the moment and you know i it's hard to imagine in a 50-50 senate even under a, a terrible set of circumstances where um where they pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act or the For the People Act and the supreme court guts it It's even now hard to imagine this Senate saying, all right, well, the penalty for that is we're going to expand the courts. Um, But you could at least imagine it like that would be a huge affront to this Congress. But they could just wait, right? Like they could just wait until there's no longer a governing trifecta. And then the window to do anything about how unrepresentative the court is of America's political majority will be closed.
2: No, I think that that's absolutely right. Um, so I think it would be a mistake to draw any long-term conclusions about what this Supreme Court is going to do based on how it is acting right now during what is, I think, the high water mark of Democratic interest in Supreme Court reform and restructuring um, in their professional lifetimes.
0: Yeah. So there's a range of views on the left about how to address the risk, the uh, the skew of the court, um, Biden's move was to impanel a court reform commission. Um, one way to interpret that is basically as a dodge, uh, just a way to avoid a politically fraught debate and kind of like white knuckle it and hope doomsayers like me and maybe you are, are wrong. Uh, and another is to say this just keeps the iron in the fire. Uh, you know, maybe just the existence of the commission, the fact that this is kind of in there, uh, creates pressure on this court not to get too over its skis. If that's the debate, which side do you come down on?
2: So I think given its membership and given its stated purpose, it's certainly a dodge. There is zero chance that given who is on this commission and what the commission was tasked with doing, that they are going to recommend or endorse any kind of reform that would be aimed at addressing you know, the Republican takeover of the courts. It wasn't designed to kind of create a platform for Let's say, informing more people about you know the conservative takeover of the courts or the litany of solutions that might be on the table to responding to that. but I don't really think that it's true um, that we can know whether the is are right within the lifetime of the Biden administration. Um, I think we might have like some indications about that you know in the next three years, but we're not going to see what the Supreme Court is really going to do, um, let's say, over the next decade um, necessarily in the next three years.
0: I wrote a piece for the New Republic in, I think, 2014 or 2015 about the movement on the libertarian right to revive Lochner-era jurisprudence. And I, I read back on the piece before we did this interview, and I think I didn't fully appreciate at the time I wrote it the extent to which we were already kind of living in that world. Let me give you a quick primer on Lochner era jurisprudence. Lochner is shorthand for the 1905 decision in Lochner versus New York, which, along with earlier rulings upholding slavery and segregation, is widely regarded within the legal academy as among the most erroneous and unjust decisions the Supreme Court has ever made. The case itself was particular to a law that capped working hours in bakeries, but its ramifications were profound. It held, in essence, that workplace regulations like a minimum wage were unconstitutional because they violated the inherent individual right to enter into contracts, to agree to work for poverty wages or in unsafe working conditions, a right which isn't actually enumerated in the Constitution. The Lochner era describes the ensuing decades when the court stepped in to throw out all kinds of progressive state and federal laws, including parts of the New Deal. And it only came to an end after FDR threatened to pack the court. 30 years from now, we're going to look back on the, uh, the Roberts court as sort of like the, the, the second coming of the Lochner era. Then we've already been here for over a decade. How does this disconnect between the courts and the governed uh, get resolved other than just by like waiting 30 years and letting nature take its course?
2: If I had an answer to that, uh, I would already have proposed it um, because I do think this is kind of like the major conflict that we are facing even if let's say the supreme court doesn't invalidate or take a big chunk out of every major biden initiative they're still going to be advancing conservative causes through various cases you know state level abortion cases state level lgbtq equality cases state level cases involving religious exemptions you know the supreme court has been extremely active in striking down public health measures designed to reduce the transmission of the coronavirus on religious liberty grounds.
0: Last night, the Supreme Court in it uh, basically barring the state of New York from enforcing strict attendance limits at houses of worship due to COVID. We should point out that this ruling also highlights the impact of uh, newly sworn Justice Amy Coney Barrett. He sided with her uh, conservative colleagues in this dispute. So that really is what uh, what, what this means. for.
2: So, you know, we talk about what this court might do. And, you know, in my view, they've already been pretty active in signaling and making, you know, big changes to the law. As far as, you know, what there is to do to minimize this gap, um, I think the solutions come in a few different forms. One is just neutralizing the power of the court's. In general. So you can imagine a body of solutions that say, well, the Supreme Court just can't invalidate federal statutes, or they can't invalidate federal statutes on the ground that they violate the First Amendment or the Tenth Amendment. Um, And living with that regime, you know, through democratic administrations, Republican administrations, you know, even in 30 years from now when there might be a democratically, you know, a a majority of justices appointed by democratic presidents. Um, So one potential bucket of solutions is just neutralize the power of the Supreme Court and the federal courts in general. Another bucket of solutions is selectively, you know, reduce the power of the federal courts. So you pass the John Lewis restoration of the Voting Rights Act, and you say, no federal court will have the power to invalidate this act on the grounds that it exceeds Congress's powers. And so you limit the power of the federal courts to do, you know, certain kinds of rulings in a certain set of cases. Alternatively, you know, you expand the lower courts, you expand the Supreme Court, you do both. um, Any of those things, perhaps in combination with one another, would address the threat that the federal courts pose to like small d democratic initiatives. I think going forward, you know, another bucket of solutions is like trying to think about things that would reduce the kind of like partisanship or like polarization of appointments. Some of these solutions are, well, you create a 10-member Supreme Court and a partisan balance requirement. Five of the justices have to be appointed by Republican presidents. Five of the justices have to be appointed by Democratic presidents. that court can't do too many insane things, um, or you know, you create a system that has life tenure. You give every president two Supreme Court appointments, and potentially have a court that like fluctuates in size. You know, there are any number of solutions you can imagine. Um, You know, perhaps we revisit Senate apportionment, perhaps we revisit the Electoral College. You know, that too would go a long way to addressing the kind of skewed composition of the Supreme Court and the fact that, you know, a majority of the justices were appointed by, you know, presidents um, who didn't necessarily get a majority of the popular vote um, and also confirmed by senators who, you know, represented less people than, or fewer people than, you know, the senators who oppose them. So you can do any of these things. You can do some of them. You can do none of them. Um, But I think it would be a mistake just to kind of sit back, keep your fingers crossed, and hope for the best.
0: I'm kind of curious what your views will be on my two preferred courses of action. Um, First one, add 1,000 seats to the Supreme Court.
2: So I think, honestly, like that would kind of effectively be um, asking the Supreme Court to disengage from like most mm-hmm. major questions. So it would be kind of like eliminating the court's jurisdiction in an important set of cases, since you can't possibly imagine like a body of a thousand people, you know, issuing a reason set of decisions in, you know, however number of cases, you know, they're hearing or, you know, the big ticket cases.
0: That was super sporting of you. And uh, I I kind of believe this. It's mostly like my like hot take. Th- uh, for the like general question of how do you diffuse this threat that the Supreme Court poses to democracies, just make a mockery of it. Um, but the the other idea I had, just kind of idly, and I'm curious what you think of it, is you know I, we got a question about whether sort of as you said, um, Congress could write in a provision saying that these these bills are exempt from judicial review, um, and in, just in kind of asking other. Uh, constitutional scholars about it. The response I got was basically they're going to say that that in and of itself is unconstitutional. Like judicial review is our divine right from the Constitution, and so you can't just write provisions exempting specific laws from them. But what if you what if you created some sort of um, I don't know if kill switch is the right word or a self executing provision that said if any provision of this bill is deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. It triggers a provision that automatically expands the court.
2: So I think that if you truly think that this Supreme Court would invalidate a provision in a statute that says, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't have jurisdiction to your constitutional challenge to this case, there is precisely no chance that the Supreme <laughs> Court wouldn't say the same for let's call it like the poison pill approach, you know, in which Congress enacts in the alternative, a Supreme Court expansion bill in the, that takes effect in the event that the court invalidates the John Lewis restoration of the Voting Rights Act. So like, I agree with you and like the scholars who are saying that, but I think there basically isn't anything outside of just expanding the number of justices on the Supreme Court that wouldn't be vulnerable to constitutional challenge given that again like the Supreme Court could just say you're interfering in our power of mm-hmm. judicial review and that I think hasn't really been grappled with, um, you know, by people who are thinking about Supreme Court reform. You know, everyone thinks that they can come up with like the one solution that is perfectly constitutional that the robber courts is like never going to invalidate, and that's just not how this works.
0: Yeah, that that's mostly my, been my sense of things that we we said on the show and uh, elsewhere that uh, the only bulletproof way to protect the John Lewis Act and the for the People Act would be to include a provision within them or prior to passing them, expanding the courts. Okay, I'll leave it there. Um, But uh, everyone, even non-lawyers, listen to Leah and Melissa Murray and Kate Shaw on the Strict Scrutiny podcast. Um, You'll learn a lot about what your government is doing and why it matters. Uh, Leah, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: The final episode of this season of Rubicon will run Friday, April 30th on Joe Biden's 100th day in office. We have another great guest lined up for you to answer all my silly questions. But we'll also take a look back, recap for you the highs and lows of the first 100 days, and talk about how things look for the next 1,000 and beyond. There's a lot to cover, and I won't be able to revisit everything that happened. But if there's anything in particular you'd like me to address about how these first days have gone, or what the future may hold, email me one last time at rubicon at crooked.com. Rubicon is written and hosted by me, Brian Boitler. It's produced by Andrew Gardner-Bernstein. Veronica Simonetti is our audio engineer. Production support from Olivia Martinez. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.